Welcome to the Fikra Podcast. This is episode four. And with me today, I have another very special guest. Last time you saw Imam Kaiser Aslam from Rutgers. Now we see Imam Farhan Siddiqui from MCNJ, Muslim Center of New Jersey. We see uh, today. Assalamu alaikum, ya Sheikh. Wa alaikum, salam wa rahmatullah. Um, so today, I want to get right into it. We're going to talk about connections. So last time we talked about college life and all these um, things that we deal with in college. Uh, we also hit upon history a little bit. But today, I want to talk about connections. So three specific aspects to the connections, right? So we see Quran, we have a connection with the Book of Allah. And then we have connections with the Masajid, right? It's the houses of Allah. And then we have uh, connections with each other, right? And how we're going to go into that is interpersonal relationships and how the Prophet ﷺ was around his companions versus his family versus other people. So we all see that. Um, so let me just let you take it over, Yashik. <laughs> so first we're going to talk about the connections uh, with the Qur'an. But before that, tell us a little about yourself. <laughs> um. I'm a Yukon graduate and I'm a Omal Qura graduate and after that I came back to the United States after completing my coursework in my master's degree and which I'm continually wor- I'm currently working on my thesis and I was hired as an imam in Virginia and after a, completing a year there, I was given an offer here, and I moved to New Jersey. And I'm here now in Fords. MashaAllah, MashaAllah. Okay, so I've, uh, the first time we met was uh, actually, I don't know if you remember, was uh, Middlesex County College. Yeah. I, um, you came to IAW. Um, you were just sitting there. And I was like, oh, my God, now there's an imam here. Because I was supposed to recite. Yeah. So I was reciting there, um, and then you were just sitting and then I kind of just left. <laughs> so we probably didn't speak too much at that time. Um, but, uh, you know, mashallah, I've always uh, heard about you from, you know, mutual brother that we all know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I came to your tafsir class and it made me very interested in how deep we can go into speaking uh, with the Quran. And, and, you, and what I was so surprised with, with, um, you know, the brother was telling me that, you guys are doing like one ayah per class and not even an ayah per class, okay? Which was so strange to me because I've never, because I, I used, I'm used to like people doing surahs in, a, in an hour session, yeah. which like you, you just like <laughs> put that aside completely. So um, <clears throat> like how, how does that work? <laughs> like, so how, like how did you do that? You know, how do you go in such depth? So... So it's it's very important to understand number one what what is the goal of doing tafsir what is the goal of doing tadabbur what is the goal of learning the Quran mm-hmm. uh, I li- I like this breakdown that you have I I would make it into more general categories saying that number mm-hmm. one how is your relationship with Allah mm-hmm. how is your relationship with your community and the last one which you kind of touched on but not completely is your relationship with yourself yes uh, and these all of these are three very important. Uh, relationships that as a Muslim that we need to make sure that we're constantly aware of. Mm-hmm. So the first one, the relationship with the Quran, the reason that I slowed it down significantly is because I wanted everyone to really take advantage and benefit from the the manner in which the Quran is being presented to us. In the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says certain things, in the order in which he presents certain words, the ideas and how they're brought to us and the reason that they're brought to us. The reason that he chooses certain words in a verse versus other words. The reason that he utilizes certain names for describing himself versus other names. The reasons that he addresses the Messenger of Allah in the way that he does. The way that he addresses us. The way that he addresses people. The way that he categorizes individuals. Uh, sometimes the duality in which is presented, sometimes in the same verse or sometimes in a series of verses, and why that's done. So that that's why it takes so much time with with these verses, and not just that because we don't have a set syllabus. I don't feel rushed, mm-hmm. and 
and I, I did get a request from one brother to speed to speed <laughs> to speed up. He's like he's like, come on, you know, can we can we speed up a little bit? And I said to him, I was like, I can try, you know, the yeah. best I can. But I, I and the qu- only question I have for you is like, do you appreciate this verse mm. more than you did? when we first came in. Yeah. Because the problem with doing series of verses is that you don't appreciate those individual verses. You know, you'll appreciate the, the surah as a whole, you know, the, the chapter as a whole, but it's very difficult to, to appreciate those individual sentences or those individual thoughts or the yeah. individual verse that is being said. So that's kind of the reason how and why I chose that pace. It kind of evolved on its own. It's not something that I had initially planned. I was hoping to do something longer, but I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that how slowly I was. I was moving oh. with the verses. It's. It's just that the verses are so dense. Yeah. And, and there's no way to really appreciate it until you break down each individual word and mm. and the way that they're formed. You know, yeah. and the way that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala really presents them. That's uh, Subhanallah. We we see that's. So how long did it take for Surah Fatiha? Did you did you do Surah Fatiha? Yeah. So we did Surah Fatiha, and I had more time. When uh-huh. when we first started, because this we would do this and the last ten nights. So when people oh, are making oh, a tikaf, yeah, yeah. what I would do is after tarawih, yeah. we would have this and we would sit for like an hour, hour and a half or whatever. Uh-huh. So I think we we finished Fatiha and like the first three ayahs of like Baqarah in the first ten days or maybe the first seven, something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I, I think we finished Fatiha in about five sittings. Mm. That's good. So. Um, and also, uh, just a personal question. Um, there's a lot of stuff said on uh, Surah Baqarah, right? Mm-hmm. What is what are some of the kind of in general characteristics of Surah Baqarah? Uh, the number of ahkam that are presented in it, because mm-hmm. because of the fact that it's Madani. Also, keeping in mind that the one of the main audiences for the Surah are the Jews. Mm-hmm. We we forget that when when mm-hmm. we're dealing with the Surah and how there are certain concepts that are being presented and spoken about them for us as Muslims to take lesson from. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala presents the munafiqeen for one of the first times uh, in, in that surah, something that is not being spoken about in Mecca because it wasn't an issue there. Mm. Uh, so in introducing a lot of these concepts to the Muslim ummah, to the companions, you know, and eventually to us, and how we, we should view those things and how we kind of need to deal with and understand that there are these categories of people out there and we will have to deal with them and, and they are a, an issue mm-hmm. for this ummah. No, well. um, so you mentioned how we have to kind of break each individual word down. Mm-hmm. Um, and like personally, like I've been learning like basic uh, Nahu, mm-hmm. right? And that's mm-hmm. like, it, it, like as you go further into the Arabic language, you realize how much you don't know mm-hmm. and how much more you can learn and keep learning, like mm-hmm. basically like forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so is, uh, so there's so many Muslims that just can't speak Arabic, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the question comes like, you know, everybody asks, um, you know, how can Muslims, uh, oh, why can I not find the benefit in the, as they say, the Quran, right? And they, these people, they say, you know, why can't I find the benefit if it's just in English, right? It should be universal because it's God's word. Yeah. Um, so what would you say to that? Like, do people need Arabic, right? The simple answer is no. You, you don't you don't need Arabic. Mm-hmm. You need Arabic to appreciate the Quran. Mm-hmm. You don't need Arabic to understand it. So that's something that's very different yes. uh, for it to understand. I mean, the thing is, there's even certain prose in English, even if you translate it into other languages, you, you'll benefit from the meaning. Yeah. But, but the construction and how the idea is presented, you're not re- you, that never translates. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing for Arabic. You can never translate the presentation. You can never translate the prose. You can never translate the, the articulation. Yes. But you can transmit the idea. There's no doubt about that. And in a... It's very important for us to understand in, that the Quran is timeless. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And not just that, the the ummah today is like 82 percent non-Arab. Yeah. You know, and even amongst the people who do speak Arabic, many of them they'll have a hard time understanding the Quran because not because they don't know the individual words, but mm. sometimes the construction or the presentation is challenging for them because they're not used to speaking in that way. Yeah. Saying that, everybody can benefit from understanding it. But like mm-hmm. I said, not everybody is going to be able to appreciate it. Yeah. Fully. You know. Definitely. So where did your uh, journey with Arabic uh, like start? Was it like in the States or like was it going overseas and then you had to learn it? or? I, don't know. I mean, it started a little bit in the States. Uh, it, and, and I think this is a very common theme and a common trend for a lot of individuals who are very passionate about religious studies, you know, especially when they want to learn about Islam. It's the first step they'll take is learning Arabic. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the pitfalls that I faced, and I, I definitely do um, 
warn. warn other people from that is that you know it's very important for you to define it's very important for us to define how much arabic is it that i want to learn mm-hmm. what level do i want to be at because the reality is it's it's an endless process you know you i there are still words that i come across today there's still idioms in arabic that i'm not aware of mm-hmm. that are present in the quran that i don't know that this is what was the actual intention behind that idiom or the way allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said this is because that's how the arabs spoke and they'll understand this presentation of this particular idea definitely so it's very important for us to understand that there are levels to this. And uh, the first level being that, okay, I want a rough understanding of the Quran. Mm. Uh, I, I believe that this can be done probably within a year with a mildly intensive course. There are a number of books out there all around the idea of learn 80% of the Quran. Bani Adek is a little bit different. I, okay. I think that's a, a little, it's a step further. Okay, okay. But there, there are a series of books where you basically memorize the vocabulary in those books and oh. you'll have an idea of what 80% of the Quran is telling you. Um, there are words in the Quran that are only mentioned once. Mm. You know, so those are the exceptions to the rule. But you'll find that there's a lot of repetition in the Quran and the reason for that or one of the reasons for that is so it's easy to memorize and it's easy to remember. So if you have 80% repetition in the Quran, that means that you will have a general understanding and general guideline of what it is that's going on in the verses. And I think this is what a vast majority of Muslims is looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is, is they don't enter these courses. They'll enter courses that are above that level and they get frustrated after five, six months because they don't see any progress in their understanding of what the Quran is saying to yeah. them. But that course is much longer, it's much more intensive. So something that, like I did, that you'll find in Azhar or you'll find in Medina or Mecca or, you know, even in some places in Pakistan, there, you know, so there's a, um, there are two Arabic institutions in Karachi that, are, that I'm aware of. There's Jami Bakr and Jami Farooqiyah. Mm. Um, and both of these are completely in Arabic. Mm. And the, the idea behind these institutions is that by the time an individual comes out, that he will be able to read, write, and have a, a good I'm, I'm an okay grasp of the language, meaning that he'll be able to pick up and open a book, and he'll ha- he'll be able to read it. Not in addition to the Quran, not in, because it is not Quran focused and Quran based. Because we have to understand that the Arabic language is broader and vast, more vast than than the Quran itself. Mm. The Quran is part of Arabic, right? But the Arabic is not part of the Quran. It's so, not limiting. It's not limited. You yeah. know, so it, there's a lot of words in the Arabic language that are not in the Quran. You know, there are a lot of statements that are made in Arabic that are not made in the Quran. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very important to keep that in mind. But if you want to learn how to read these books and understand them, then you do have to take that second step. And that's, I, w- I would say that's a very intensive course. You're looking at about two years uh, mm-hmm. of, of uh, minimum of, in- <laughs> of intensive study. Yeah. Um, if you want to get to a point now where you are reading and understanding those books and able to kind of read between the lines, I would say a person will need about four to six years, depending Mm. on how intelligent they are. Um, And then if you're looking to actually produce academic works in Arabic and contribute to to the field, you're looking about eight years. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I don't mean mean to be discouraging, but but the thing is, and, and inshallah, I mean, this is something that we can talk about later on yeah. what, what are the opportunities for this individual mm-hmm. uh, w- once he does complete something like this. Because the thing is, if you compare something to like here in, here in the United States, like a medical degree, yeah. a base medical degree takes about eight years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and even then you still have to go do a fellowship afterward and there's time that you have to spend. So uh, if you if you actually compare it in that sense, like obviously there's a pay discrepancy, but there's also a scholarship discrepancy. You know, st- studying religious studies is far cheaper than going to medical school. Exactly. Uh, um, <laughs> wow, that was a lot. That was a lot. That was a lot. Again, mashallah. Um, really touched upon a lot of stuff. So uh, with like studying here, though, um, a lot of people say that you, you just can't become like uh, an imam or like a scholar when you're here, right, in the States, in the, uh, in the, in the Western world. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So when you're in the Western world, you just can't uh, become uh, a scholar imam, right? What would you say on that? Because like, what is it? You have to go overseas or what? I mean, it depends on the demands of the community because mm-hmm. the thing is, and, and how you define what an imam is and what a scholar is, th- these things are very important to keep in mind. Uh, there, you can become an academic. I, I don't deny that. You know, you definitely can become an academic here in, in the Western world in the United States. But becoming becoming a scholar, we always th- the difference between a scholar and an academic is that a scholar is going to be more subjective than the academic. 
meaning that he truly believes in everything it is that he's presenting. An academic yeah. doesn't necessarily believe everything that he's presenting. That's true. Because they always want to have this, you know, unbiased, objective type thing. We have objectivity within the subjectivity, if if that's if that makes sense. Mm. But in in order to do that, it's very important to surround ourselves with people who have the same belief that that we do. And obviously, not everybody in the academic community believes everything it is that they're teaching. So they're not as invested in defending all those concepts and all those ideas uh, versus you know Eastern academic institutions where they are fully invested and they're trying to produce these people who are going to defend the Sharia tooth and nail. Definitely. Yeah, that's um, so. So yeah, that was a lot again. <laughs> but mashallah, the great questions, great answers. Um, so I would say that uh, a lot of scholars, right? Scholar is a very broad term anyway. Mm-hmm. A lot of people call themselves scholars today anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you, what, you made a face. What, what, do you, what do you say about that? <laughs> the, the word scholar is thrown around very loosely, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of people who put unnecessary stipulations on what a scholar is. Mm-hmm. And, and they kind of have that cultural archetype on how to define what a scholar is. And a scholar is basically somebody who can't speak English very well. You know, and he's in Arabic is his dominant language, and or his pop, he's based on his popularity. How popular this person is defines his level of scholarship, or if he has a degree or not. It's a it's a very subjective term. It's Definitely. a very subjective term. Uh, to me, a scholar is anybody who has knowledge. Definitely. Um, and then uh, speaking of knowledge, how important would you say is it to uh, with the Quran specifically to memorize the Quran? Right, and then also like on to focus on tajweed. Tajweed, obviously, every um, like Muslim should have an understanding of tajweed. But why would, how many would you say the Muslims do focus on tajweed? <laughs> it's a, I'm not sure if this is a loaded question, but uh, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. <laughs> no, so memorization. It depends on your, the reasoning for memorize. You know, why is it that in, this individual intention, wants to, yeah. you know, his intention needs to be pure, and if his intention is to please Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, he should go for it. You know, or or if he's if he's going into um, Islamic studies and he wants to study particular science, it develops a great base for him. Is it necessary for a person to be a Hafiz Quran? No. There are many yeah. m- many companions who are not Hafiz and they were still scholars. Uh, there are many scholars who were scholars and not Hafal. Mm-hmm. So um, is, is it a condition for that? No. Is it a huge stepping stone and a milestone for that individual? And is it important? Yes. I, I, I definitely do agree with that sentiment. As far as Tajweed g- goes, it depends on if you are on the Madhav of the Qurra or the Madhav of the Fuqaha. <laughs> so, so the Qurra, they will fight you tooth and nail and tell you that Tajweed is wajib. Yeah. And if you do not recite, recite correctly, then you know your your prayer is invalid and your qira is invalid, yeah. etc. The fuqaha they're much more loose uh, when it comes to dealing with tajweed, saying yeah. that as long as the person isn't intentionally misrepresenting what it is that he's reciting, and it's understood what it is that he's saying, mm-hmm. even even with the larger mistakes, then it is you know his qira is still valid and his salah is still valid. Obviously, it's not preferred though. Yes. It's, it's not preferred. Uh, and I, I tend to lean toward that uh, because the Qur'an, obviously, they're going to be, you know, even though they're both subjective, I feel they're a little bit more biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the biggest uh, reciters, you know, you see that. They, they're the masters anyway. Yeah. Um, and no, so, I mean, they, they, they work hard for their trade and they, they set the standard very high. Yes, yes. Um, so, uh, in terms of connecting as an individual today, mm-hmm. how can I internalize verses of the Quran, uh, even with the translation, or even if I do, do study Arabic? Um, and then why is that even important? Okay. So it's it's very important for us to differentiate between two major concepts, which is tafsir and tadabbur. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel that a lot of individuals they fall into the trap of c- confusing the two, feeling that tafsir is tadabbur. Tafsir can be from tadabbur, but not everybody has the ability to do tafsir, but everybody has the ability to do tadabbur. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason it's important is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to us very clearly, he says, tafsir uh, I'll, I'll get into that, inshallah. Mm-hmm. But it's very important for us to understand, firstly, what is the what is my position on tadabbur? Yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, that do they not ponder over the Quran, or is it that their hearts are locked, or their hearts have locks over them? And he doesn't command the same thing with tafsir. When he talks about the rasikhun fil ilm, 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَا يَعْلَمُ تَعْوِيلُهُ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَالْرَاسِقُونَ فِي الْعَلْمِ That mm-hmm. only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and those who are rasiq fi al-ilm, yani those who have knowledge, understand the ta'wil or understand the tafsir of the verses. But he doesn't command everyone to do tafsir, but he commands every single Muslim, Muslim to do tadabbur. What is tadabbur? Tadabbur is pondering over and interacting with these verses. And how, if I said to you, okay, you read a verse and I, you read the translation of it, and I asked you a question like, instead of, I didn't ask you what does this verse mean, because that is tafsir. Yeah. But if I said to you, like, how do you feel after reading this verse? That's pondering. Right, that, that's, that's actually pondering over it. What did you benefit from this verse? This, this is pondering over the verses. This is what actually doing tadabur is. Mm-hmm. And nobody can ever tell you you're wrong. Right? If I, I said, well, I feel angry after reading this verse. Like, can I tell you, no, you're lying? Mm-hmm. It, it, you can't. right? Because these are my feelings. This is my experience with the Quran. And, and I feel this is lost. We've really lost that personal connection with the Quran. And when I tell people... Okay, you know, how do you judge your relationship with Allah? You judge your relationship with Allah by judging your relationship with the Qur'an. Because that is His word. And this is the closest thing we have to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if we don't have a good relationship with His book, how can we even think that we have a good relationship with Him? And it's very important for us to have, what is my experience with this verse? And just a quick side story, I... uh, I'm part of a few interfaith groups, so I sat down with uh, some priests and rabbis one time, mm. and I was like, "Hey, I have a question for you guys. How do you maintain your relig- religiosity, like in your homes? Yeah, like you know, with your kids and stuff." So one guy he said to me, one of the priests, he was like, "We have a Bible study," and I was like, "I was like, what's that?" He said, "We sit down with a verse of the Bible, one verse, mm. and I sit down and I ask my kids, like, and we talk about the verse." And I, I, I felt so stupid. Like I, I really, I, this one of the one like is one time in my life that I remember very clearly that I felt like an absolute idiot, mm. and I was like, Subhanallah, these people have a book that even they say has been changed and has been you know uh, perverted. We have the truth, and we don't even do that. And I, I've made an effort in my home. Uh, where we sit down with one verse, the translation. My kids don't know Arabic. Yeah. I sit down with the translation. I ask them, like, okay, what do you guys think about this verse? You know, let let them interact with the verses. And and it's subhanallah, there are some fawaid and some benefits that they take out. I'm like, wow, you know, <laughs> even even I'm shocked. Yeah. But Allah subhanahu wa taala has given His book because He knows that people, you know, يعني, that people have different levels of intellect. How I interact with the verse is not going to be the same way that you interact with the verse. Mm-hmm. But each of us share that we can interact with it. Yeah. And that, that goes into like what this is the the kalamullah. Yeah. Right? It's not it, it, because when somebody is speaking to you, they, they don't just speak to you in terms of like a, like a sound that's coming out. Right. Mm-hmm. It's more to like what it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's... Um, I'm not even going to get into the kalamullah and that makhluk. Because that's an entirely different conversation slash debate. I mean, I, right, the I, we're not going to get into that. I mean, it, I mean, just even a quick summary of that. Yeah. Even a quick summary of that. If you say that it is kalamullah makhluk, if you say it is ghayr makhluk, if you say yani, bidun salt wa harf, mm. if you say it's kalam nafsi, if you say, no, you know, it is kalam masmur, and it doesn't matter, akhi. It, it really doesn't. E- even, so the Imam Ahmed, he was put on trial for this issue. Yeah. Right? He was put on trial for this issue. A very prominent Hanbali scholar, Najmuddin al-Tufi, he even said that Kalamullah, makhluq, ghair makhluq, yani, uqal al-jamhur, he said, and the majority say, ghair makhluq. What does that mean? He says that there's a minority of Muslims who say that it is makhluq. Yeah. These are academic discussions. Exactly. These are not discussions that need to happen amongst the people. The only thing that, and we have to understand all of these different sects, yeah. all of these different sects, what is the thing that they shared? There are two things, two major things that we have to keep in mind. Number one, they all believed it was Qadam Allah. How it was, was where they differed. The second thing is all of them wanted to do Tanzihanillah. All of them wanted to protect Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from being similar to His creation. Mm. And in doing that, some of them were correct and some of them were incorrect. But at the end of the day, they had these two major things, which, which means that we keep, these individuals were still within the fold of Islam. Some of these opinions, to me, yes, they're, 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 they're acceptable ways of dealing with the issues and some of them are not. 
But at the end of the day, if a person believes A, B, or C, to me, it's irrelevant. Do you believe it's Kalamullah? Yes. Do you believe that we have to remove Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from any types of similitude to his creation? Yes. <clears throat> Alhamdulillah. You're Muslim, and that, that's, that's enough for me. Yeah. So, I mean, and that goes into, like, um, creating the bonds between the people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that, that's more of uh, what I would say is uh, creating the jama'ah, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, like, I do daily reminders on my uh, Instagram, mm-hmm. right? So, like, I'll do, like, a little small concept, right? A very short, you know, maybe four little uh, snippets, right? It goes into, like, a minute, right? And then I'll do, like, uh, I think recently I just did... Um, the benefits of being in a jama'ah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's just like being close with one another. And being in a jama'ah doesn't mean that you just pray together and then you leave. You have to know the people that are in that jama'ah, right? And you have to know, like, if there's any problems, you help them out, yeah. right? Um, and that's the benefits, right? And then we go to our second point, um, uh, the connections with the masjid, mm-hmm. right? Uh, like, masjid specifically, like, w- linguistically, what is what does it mean? I mean, that's actually I don't I don't know. <laughs> masjid it, it comes from the root sajda, and the masjid is the place of sajda. Yeah, and it's the place where you actually bow down in prayer. Uh, but when it comes to us in like a religious and a cultural context, it's more of a community center. Yes. Right. So where the people come to learn, where the people come to educate themselves, where the people come to socialize, people come to eat. You know, even during iftar, yeah. uh, people come. Like if I have any issues, I have any problems, the first place I'm going to go is to the masjid yeah. because it's the community center, and I know there are going to be other people there who can help me. Why do we have boards? You know, in, in the masajid, you know, I'm looking for a job or I have a job or I have a place to rent or I have a business because this is a community center and the, the community, this is where the community comes in. And there are a number of activities that happen in the masajid, regardless of what certain madhahib or individuals think. Right. So there yeah. it, it is a community center at the end of the day. The Prophet used to receive delegations in the masjid. He used to receive outsiders in the masjid. Um, hadith in Bukhari where the uh, the people from Habisha they were practicing you know throwing spears in the, in the masjid you know in and yeah. of itself I, there, there are so many things that we we far removed ourselves we, we've encased ourselves in the idea of the cultural masjid but not the actual religious one yeah um, and then are there any stories that stand out that happened uh, in the masjid <laughs> In, in our masjid, yeah. in, I, I will say, and this is something that I, I do praise our community for, yeah. we do not have, I can't think of the last time a person actually screamed in the masjid or raised his voice or, or yelled. This is one of the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has really blessed this community with. And I ask him to continue blessing this community. If people have an issue, I've had people come in here and talk to me individually. And yeah. this, this is a great show of sincerity yeah. where people are actually willing to talk to you privately. If people want to talk to you publicly, this is usually a sign of ego. This is usually a sign of selfishness. This is usually an idea, a sign of pride that they want to voice their opinion. Yeah. Um, even our elections, they go relatively smoothly. Uh, we, we don't have those type of issues here. There's nothing really that stands out. There there are stories of before I came. Yeah. Um, I think there is a, one, one very famous story. This <laughs> this is one of, the, one of the youth that shared with me. During Ramadan, there's a brother here who makes. He's known for making the, you know, the subcontinent tea, which is yeah. with the, you know, the the chai, you know, yeah, what we call it, dudpati. Yeah. And uh, he says that there is two brothers that were going for the tea at the same time, <laughs> and, and one brother spilled tea on the other brother's foot, and he had a full cup of tea, and he threw his cup of tea <laughs> oh in God. that brother's face. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> and it almost turned into like this really big fight. But the thing is, they're they weren't they're not regular community goers. You know, these uh, are people who only come during Ramadan. And, yeah, and and one of the things that we forget, and I don't know if we overlook it or if we forget it, is that people tend to be on far shorter fuses during Ramadan. I mean, if you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're tired. You yeah, know what I mean? Like yeah, you're, yeah. you're just deprived of all these things, and you have such a short fuse during Ramadan, and anything will trigger you. And we see that, and we experience that. Subhanallah. <laughs> <laughs> That's um. And that, that's and that goes into like how like everybody knows each other and like even if they do get into like a fight it's like uh, brothers get into fights all the, all time. the time you know what I mean so that's basically the same thing um, you know and that that goes into the 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 connections uh, between brothers you know and you know what is bro- uh, iman is what what is iman which what do you want thicker, me to say thicker than blood okay. <laughs> yeah yeah so <laughs> that's what I wanted to do I'm not, I'm not really sure what you wanted yeah. me to say there. <laughs> yeah. like iman is 
the basis of our faith. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, brotherhood is uh, brotherhood in Islam. You know what I mean? It's, uh, no, and, and it's amazing how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, he says, Yeah. And if you think about actual brotherhood, there are brothers you don't like. There yeah. are brothers you don't get along with. Yeah. Like even within your family, like your, exactly. blo- your blood brother. Yeah, yeah. And this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes us. He's like, listen, you're, you're not all going to get along. I know, I know that. I created you. I made you. But all of you need to stand with each other. Yeah. That's, that's what's important. And whether you like him or you dislike him, there are certain foods that he likes that you don't like. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, each of you are individuals. I created you individuals. But at the end of the day, you have to remember your brothers and you need, you need to bring victory and you need to help one another. Definitely. Um, and then uh, in terms of the masjid, right, uh, how does the masjid run? Like we, we have to, you know, contribute to the masjid. It's a community center. We're all in together. Uh, why are some people like hesitant to donate? to masajid because a lot of people say that, oh it's the corrupt and like you know they they don't know what they're doing with their money you know what we don't want to give our money where we don't know where it's going to go so what, what do you have to say on that i think this, they're all very reasonable excuses i uh, know nobody's obligating you to give money to any masjid um, there, there are a few issues that i do have with how many masajids are run and that is that we we lack qualified people in administrative positions, oh. and, and it for, through no, no fault of their own. The yeah. the reality is is that we're expecting individuals to act as CEOs when they've never been CEOs. Yeah, uh, this is all masajid or most masajid I would say are nonprofit organizations. Yeah, and even if you ask many of the presidents of these different organizations, okay, what is the difference between a nonprofit and a for profit? Mm. What is the fundamental difference? Do, do you happen to know? Yeah, well, the for profit is like. They have a revenue stream and they make mm-hmm. money based off of that. And then okay. they use profits to go back into the co- uh, company, basically. That's what it is. Okay. But a non-profit mm-hmm. would base off of donations. Okay. So, yeah. Salvation Army. Is it a non-profit? Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't Good know. W- Goodwill. <laughs> also a non-profit. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, they take their profits and they pay for their employees as with that. Okay. And a for-profit? <laughs> I don't know what's your point <laughs> because wait now I'm confused the difference between a for-profit and a non-profit is how the revenue is divided yeah for-profit it goes to the shareholders Not yeah, yeah. non-profit it's reinvested into the organization mm. that's it oh, okay and it's very sad <laughs> that most people don't know that now, I'm not expecting you to, but but in, in, no, I'm saying. Listen, yeah, I've yeah. I've I've been into large organizations, yeah, yeah. large organizations. I I won't I won't take their names, but you know who work here in New Jersey, and I went around the table. And there were about twenty people there. Nobody knew. Wow. And you're talking about one of the largest organizations in the United States. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> And, and again, through no fault of their own, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a need. You need bodies. You know what I mean? You need, you need human resources. You yes. need them. Yes. And, and these people, they gave the time, so they stepped in, but they're not necessarily qualified for that. And when you don't have qualified people in position, you lose trust in those people, whether that be the imam or whether that be the president or whether it even be a worker. You know, I, I wouldn't, I trust my plumber, but I wouldn't let him work on my car. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. I trust my mechanic, but I wouldn't want him to lead Salah. Right. So, so the thing is, we, we have to understand that we, this lack of qualified people is even some Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he told us that, the nas and juhala, that they, the people will choose ignorant people as their leaders. But nobody is ignorant in the absolute sense. No one. Yeah. Somebody knows something. Like, you know, everyone knows something. Everyone knows something. Yeah. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what he means here is that these individuals were not qualified for the positions that they were put in. Definitely. You know, so it, it's that lack of qualifications and then secondly, lack of transparency. These are usually the two downfalls of, of uh, nonprofit organizations or the masajid in, here in the United States. I can't speak on the world, but here in the United States, these are two of the biggest problems that they're not willing up to put their uh, finance sheet up or, you know, they're not willing to be transparent in the election process or the selection process or yeah. whatever processes mm-hmm. they have in place. It's very important for all these masajid to set up rubrics. You know, okay, these these are the criteria that we chose, or these are the criteria that we, you know, we selected this individual. And once the community knows that, they will trust you. Because all relationships, all relationships are built off of two things. They're built off of trust, and they're built off of uh, honesty. I mean, uh, trust and uh, trustworthiness. Like, amana, sitqin amana, honesty and trustworthiness. Mm. It's very important to keep both of these things in mind. Because if we don't have these two things, that relationship, will there will be a breakdown in that relationship. I, I can guarantee it.
Um, yeah, that, that's <laughs> a lot of stuff right there. That's um, that's going into like personal experience from yourself as well, like uh, dealing I mean, with you, even not just my experience as an imam, but my experience as a member of the community. Even growing up in you know growing up in the U.S., I grew up in Connecticut, and this is the main problem that a lot of these massages had. There's just no transparency, um, and when you don't have qualified people, you don't know how to delegate. Uh, when you don't know how to delegate, you don't know how to empower. And if you're not delegating people, you're not empowering them. All they have is this volunteership. You're not giving them ownership, and they're not getting any fulfillment, you know, whether it be social, whether it be spiritual, whatever, because they can't get financial fulfillment because it's volunteer work. So you either have to give them social fulfillment or you have to give them uh, spiritual fulfillment. And neither of these are being given. You know, you have people who are micromanaging. and I mean, there's a, there's a number of issues. And again, this is a, this is a discussion <laughs> for another time. Yeah. yeah, entirely different uh, conversation. <laughs> um, so a lot of people who are like non-masjid goers, right? Mm-hmm. They haven't been to the masjid for like maybe, what, 14 years. That's like the older generation and the other people have just, their parents have never taken them to yep. the masjid. How does one even start to try to come to a masjid? How do they like find a masjid? Like, yeah. I mean, obviously like all masjids are yep. like, you know, decent, you know? No, I mean, the, I, I would say that the best thing for the masjid to do is to have social programs. Yes. Very simply. It could be something as small as a potluck. It can be something as large as an organized sports event or an organized, you know, uh, even something that's smaller, like if, if the community is from the subcontinent, an organized carom event, mm. card event, you know, where people are playing cards, something. You know, I, you, you need to have these social events because if, if I asked you, and there was a study that was done on this recently, I think within the fa- past five years, yeah. what percentage of the community do you think comes for Salat al-Jama'ah? Uh, just throw a number out there. 50. 50 okay it's actually closer to 20 and even less honestly oh and that's Juma. Juma, yeah I was... and we have a huge turnout for Juma. Wow. you're uh, up to 40 to 50 percent for the eight salawat wow meaning that you have at least half of the community that is not involved in the masjid at all and if i ask you okay this is for the salawat this is for the khutbah like what percentage of the community if i had a class every day Let's say I had a class every single day. Yeah, what yeah. percentage of the community is going to be attracted to my classes? Honestly. Regardless of, let's say I am the greatest scholar in the United States today. Yeah, maybe 20? You think the same number of people for Jomar are going to come for my class? Oh, wait, no, no, no. Five. Like, that's a, and that's a lot. That's a lot? That's oh. a lot. For the, okay... Wow. For educational classes, yeah, yeah. people in general they don't want to seek knowledge. People, in, you know, they just they just want to practice their religion. That's yeah. it, and, and that's, and that's not fine. Bad, yeah. Okay, I have nothing wrong with that. Exactly. I, I think that's I think that's very admirable. I think it's very honorable. Yeah. In in my role as an imam is to help you facilitate that. Yeah. Like I am supposed to facilitate you practicing your religion. Yeah. That's it. You're the like CEO of the masjid. Like yeah. you need to help that. Like, I I need to facilitate for them. Okay, what is it? I I can tell them everything's haram. That's very easy for <laughs> that's very easy for me. Yeah. But that does not give them practical solutions to exactly. the problems that they're facing. And not just that, it will turn them away from the religion. And the reality is the religion has the answer to all their problems, even if I don't as an individual. Yeah. But the religion does have answers. That's for sure. There's no doubt about that. And I, and I fully believe that. Definitely. And that, and that goes into like other people who just haven't, not even just coming to the masjid, what about people who just haven't been practicing? Like, well, how do they even start a process to come back? Because a lot of people, they... Okay, because first of all, if you try to teach someone who just hasn't been practicing, never even learn, mm-hmm. try to see, teach them, like, fiqh or that just off the start, yeah. be like, okay, this is tahara, this is salah, this yeah. is psalm, this is... Like, if you try to do that, they're just going to be turned off anyway, right? What is the basis for that? Like, what do you, what do you try even going to the person? Uh, because they don't want to be imposed on. Mm. You have to realize everybody moves at their own pace. Even yes. the Prophet Sallallahu every village that he went into or that he conquered, he gave da'wah to, did he say, okay, let me sit down now and teach you your deen from A to Z? No. Or did he just say, take the shahada? Yeah. And things will come in time. We need to have the same mentality. We yeah. need to have the same process. Like yeah. things, things will come in time. Yeah. Not everybody needs to be given like you know uh, al-minhaj. Not everybody needs to be given like mukhlas al-quduri and be like, okay, sit down and read this, and this is you know this is your manual for the rest of your life. Exactly. No man, like I, I'm I'm not with that at all. Exactly. People will learn on their own time. The the best thing is for them to associate with Muslims. That's the best thing that they can do. And that's the first step. And that's the first step. Yeah. And even this is what the Prophet ﷺ wanted. Yeah, he, you just want them to take shahada. You want them to associate with the Muslims. That is 
is it. Any other steps they want to take beyond that, and may Allah give them tawfiq, may Allah bless them. I don't, I don't see any need for that. Like, no, you have to join this class or you have to learn this. <laughs> no, I'm to, uh, I, I think commit yeah. to a madhab. Yeah, uh, no, committing to a madhab. Go ahead. That's your personal choice. Yeah, I have no issue with that at all. Yeah. This will bring structure to your life. Exactly. This will give you something to fall back on. You know, e- even myself, I, I, I am humbly because this is the madhab I learned, not the yeah. madhab I chose. Yeah, if, if that makes sense. Exactly. This is what I taught. This is what I took. And this is where I am. I mean, I, I have no issue with it. I have no problems with it. And you choose the madhab for structure. That's that's it. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't choose a method because it's not like choosing a gang, you know, <laughs> which which unfortunately for some people that's what it is. No, yeah, this is just a way to worship Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, Subhanallah. The, the 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 story of the Prophet actually all any stories or uh, a hadith of the Prophet it just increases your love for him, yeah. right? Um, and that goes into his relationships with. Like the Sahaba, right, and the other people that were around him at that time—not even just uh, like even the non-Muslims, yeah. right? Um, so, how are his interactions versus with his family versus the Sahaba versus non-Muslims, okay. right? Those three specific. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, his his interaction with the companion. Now, we have to realize there's and there's an overarching theme, yeah, uh, over all of these. Because even if I asked you right now, I said, okay, what are the two most important characteristics of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or what are the ones that immediately come to mind? Sadiq and Amin. Yes, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to, you yeah, know. On the spot, uh, I was gonna say. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. This is any Muslim you ask, any yeah, Muslim, yeah. you know why? Because these are the two foundational characteristics that a society needs to run. Yes. Any relationship I have, whether it be my mother, my father, my friend, my coworker, my imam, regardless, it, it's irrelevant. Yeah. It's very important for me to have these two characteristics if I want society to continue. And these are the things that he, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, had throughout his relationships, whether it be with his friends, or not his friends, or even his enemies. That he was always truthful, he was always honest, he was always trustworthy. Uh, as it, When it came to his companions, there is one thing that he did different that he didn't do with his other companions. And subhanAllah, uh, Dr. Muhammad Musa, he, he came recently to give us a talk. Mm. And he asked this question, he said, why was it that the companions loved the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Because he never asked them for anything. Ever. Yeah. He never asked them. Even when he needed money, he would go to the Jews and ask them for money before he went to Uthman, Abd al-Rahman, Ibn Auf, people who like, you're talking about wealthy, like ridiculously wealthy. He never went to them once asking them for money. And this is one of the reasons, because they knew, like not only did he never ask them for money, he had no, he didn't care about the dunya. Like he had no care for the dunya at all. So when, and, and if we dealt like this, you know, with people, if people knew we never had this ulterior motive of wanting money from them, not necessarily other things, but how much do you even feel when you know somebody and every time you see him, it's like, man, this guy's going to ask me for some money. How do you feel about that person? You, you don't, you don't want to be near him. You want to get away from him. But if you knew that this man, sallallahu alayhi wa every time he came, he had no ulterior motive except to come and meet you. It was a natural love that they had. You cannot force love. You can't. Yeah. It has to develop naturally. And even when we hear about the Prophet, we love him. We've never met him. We've never yeah. seen him. We've never interacted with him. But we still love him. Why? Because of the things we hear about him. And, 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 and it's not limited to him. Obviously, our love for him is greater and it's a foundational part of the religion, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But even other people who we hear about, when we hear good things about him, what happens in our hearts? We start to want to know more about them. Yeah. We love them. Yeah. We, we love them. I mean, it, it's, it's very natural. <clears throat> it's very natural. And he saw something. He had those characteristics. And one of the things that I've noticed that he had with his family is that we don't have today is he had lower expectations from his family than he did from his friends. Mm-hmm. Opposite. And, and the opposite. I found that amazing. He had no expectation. Like, even if you look at his interactions with Aisha, she let, she, she let a slave run away. Mm-hmm. She didn't cook. So, you know, sometimes, like, I wouldn't say she didn't cook, but, like, you know, she'd be in the middle of, like, kneading bread and she would fall asleep and the mice would come and, like, eat from the bread. Like, just, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to say irresponsible, yeah. but, you know, she, she was very, uh, sometimes she was very lackadaisical. She would ask, act very childlike because she was very young. Yeah. And he's always telling he never said anything to her. Yeah. Why? Because he kept those low expectations from her. And I think that's, I found that amazing because we tend to do the opposite. We have very high expectations from our children. We have very high expectations from our wives. And the thing is, setting a standard is different than having an expectation from them. You know, it, should I set this? Should I set the bar that okay, this individual needs to pray and this needs to? Be, but even narrations where we have him, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam praying, how many narrations do we have where Aisha Radhiallahu just still laying there? 
Mm. Right? Yeah. It's, wallahi, it's amazing. Yeah. Wallahi, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, to, to see and just look at these narrations and look at how he never imposed himself on his family. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons his wives loved him so much. Is because he never imposed himself. He never gave those expectations. And when, as far as it concerns, uh, you know, and even for his daughter, you know, Fatima Radilat, when she used to come in, he used to stand up for her. He used to go and greet her. He used to honor her. You know what I mean? But even the expectations he had for her, like when she came to him with problems that she was having at home saying that, you know, you know, I don't, we don't have a, we don't have a house servant, you know, to carry this. Prophet he was like, you know, say subhanAllah, alhamdulillah. Yeah, Allah, yeah. Allah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's subhanAllah, it's just the, the way he interacted with them and the way he interacts with his companions. It's like he had more expectations from his friends than he had from his family. And I, oh. and I always found that amazing. Yeah. Um, as far as it concerns the non-Muslims, he dealt with them well, you know, and he was respectable and he was honest and, you know, and it, it, it would seem... That he, the only difference that was between the non-Muslims and the Muslims, that he would spend more time with the Muslims, with his companions, yeah. than he would with the non-Muslims. Not not saying that he would deny them, but he would just spend more time amongst the Muslims, which I think is very natural. I, I don't, you know, I don't see that to be unnatural. But even then, his enemies respected him, and, and this commanding of respect from your enemies is something that I feel is definitely lost within us because we don't have those characteristics of trustworthiness and honesty. Subhanallah. And uh, specifically, just one little thing that kind of off on a tangent, it came to my mind, him dealing with uh, non-Muslims specifically. Um, I heard that someone said, you know, and, they were, and it goes into like, you know, this so-and-so said, so-and-so said, so-and-so said about this hadith. Okay, yeah, basic situation. The Prophet ﷺ, I don't know how uh, true this is, that he accepted a dish mm-hmm. from someone that he, no one knew was halal or uh, haram. And then some people use that as a thing. Oh, the Prophet said, Bismillah, and eat it. Uh-huh. So what is that uh, story? Just a little, little tangent. Like, uh, what, <laughs> yeah. No, is this oh, you want to get to like Labiha non Labiha discussion, Aki? No, no, just, <laughs> just like a little before that. Yeah, I mean, I I've dealt with a lot of individuals. So, so you, yeah. This I mean, this is a very long discussion, Aki. But just very very quickly concerning this particular hadith, without getting into the Labiha non Labiha discussion, <laughs> is that the Prophet was in a village with Aisha radiAllahu anha. Okay. He sat down. He was brought a dish of meat, and Aisha radiAllahu anha. And these individuals had just accepted Islam. Yes. They had just accepted Islam. And Aisha, she turned to the Prophet she's like, hey, can we eat it? And he was like, he turned to her, he's like, say Bismillah and eat it. So the the reason, so this is some of the scholars, they use this as a proof that, okay, well here the Prophet he obviously didn't have time to teach these individuals the Ahkam al Yes. Right? Yes, he didn't have time to teach yeah. them, okay, how to slaughter and what to slaughter. Yeah. So however it is that they were slaughtered, the Prophet accepted it from it. So the scholars have taken from that, that saying Bismillah is not a shart to slaughter yes that's the only thing that you can Basically. take from this hadith yeah and, and you have this there, between the Ahnaf and the Shafi'iyah you've had this long debate the Ahnaf saying that there are three conditions to slaughter which is the person needs to be Muslim it has to be uh, the, the blood has to spill from the from the main jugulars and thirdly the, the Allah's name has to be taken over it the Shafi'iyah say no there are only two conditions mm. the Allah's name does not need to be taken on it it just has to be done by a Muslim and it has to be slaughtered meaning that the, the jugular needs to be cut subhanAllah mm. um Amazing things, yeah. Just a little. It was a very, very off-topic kind of thing, but it was just. Uh, I feel like it. <laughs> it was definitely a lot of uh, be, uh, listeners might be uh, benefiting from that. Inshallah. Inshallah. I hope so. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brother's about to take me out to Popeyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That yeah, Subhanallah. That's crazy. Um, and you know, Inshallah, if they're listening now, then if they're on their way to Popeyes. Then... I mean, so. <laughs> so I, you know, and since you've decided to go on the tangent, <laughs> I, I, I will continue with it. There is a uh, there's a brother who came up to me in the community, and yeah, yeah. he was like, he's like, my son is arguing with me about eating chicken, oh. like at KFC and blah blah. And I said, I said, listen, I, it's a reasonable academic scholarly opinion. I don't see an issue with it. I don't see a problem with it. And if this is the opinion that he follows, and he was like, yeah, but I don't, you know, I don't, I disagree with him, and it's not like this. I was like, listen, Ahi, I I don't mind arguing the fiqh with you behind it and the reasoning behind it. But you need to understand that this is a valid position. So my question to you is, does your son pray? He said, yes. I said, okay. And he fasts and he follows others. He said, yes. I said, does he lie to you? He said, no. I was like, do you have a good relationship? He's like, yes. I was like, does he have a girlfriend? He said, no. I said, okay, so are you really worried about the chicken? <laughs> I, I was like, the, the, the only thing that I would advise you yeah. is that it's your house. And I don't like eggplant. 
so eggplant doesn't come into my house, right? I say <laughs> you, you know, I'm saying you you can prevent halal things from entering your home. Yeah. So even if he sees it halal, he is more than welcome to make that decision because you can't enforce religious opinions on on our children. Yeah. And and many of the things that we don't we don't realize is that many of our children are a different madhab than we are. Yeah. It, because of the exposure that they have, you know, in, in the United States, it's so mixed. Yeah. It's there's no predominant madhab here. There's not. And you just have a mix. You have all madahib, you know, and it's coming to the masajid. So I told his brother, I was like, yeah, this is a case of priorities. Do you, if your son is doing all these things, do you really want to battle him in this issue where there actually is a difference of opinion? Is it yeah. worth it? <laughs> and if you think it's worth it, go for it. I personally don't think so. Yeah. Maintain the relationship. Allow him to do it and just say, hey, listen, okay, fine. That's the opinion you follow, but that stuff's not coming in my house. Yeah. Simple. Exactly. Um... So, yeah, uh, I mean, we, we went off on a tangent. It's okay, though. It was a good conversation. <laughs> Love it. Uh, well, the next thing that I, that I have uh, had written down for it was, um, like, I think you, you did the event on uh, opposite gender interactions. Yeah. Uh, and then that's like another whole tangent. Um, and, then <laughs> and I wrote a lot of things on that. But, uh, inshallah, I think this is a good place to uh, kind of settle down on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think we, we touched on a lot of different topics. And uh, this is usually how I end my podcast. I just say thank you. And I, <laughs> I usually say, Jazakallah khair for uh, joining us today. We talked on so many different connections and so many things that we can uh, deal with. Um, and uh, inshallah, we're going to be starting the uh, new series that you suggested to me, um, uh, going to different... The role of the imam. Uh, role of the imam. So yeah, we're going to be... Uh, well, I'm going to be trying to go to different imams, uh, trying to interview... Um, trying to see the different opinions, not even different opinions, different methods of uh, being an imam, uh, what that means to them, um, and how they contextualize it with their community. Uh, because even in just in New Jersey, there's so many, so many that um, we can uh, talk to and get in contact with. Um, and I think even in just in like the Patterson Clifton area, there's like so many just in that area. <laughs> I don't I don't mind taking uh, exactly. I mean I don't, I don't mind calling people out, but the thing well, is, you have you have a good Ashari community. Yeah. You, you have a Diobandi community. Exactly. You have, you have Salafi communities. You have like all kinds. You know, you have the entire spectrum. Exactly. Um, where you can actually sit down and talk with all these people Definitely. and what it really means to them. I, th- I think it's a great idea. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, inshallah, we're gonna be starting that. Uh, over the next coming weeks um, So inshallah this will be up On the 27th 8th, 28th This episode will be on uh, the 28th uh, So inshallah if you are listening On that day Jazakallah khair for listening This is up on SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts You name it Jazakallah uh, khair for watching And uh, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh